before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you. A lot of times, it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money. It was here. It was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Welcome, everybody, to episode five. Five already of the Super Terrific Happy Hour. Uh, joining me, as always, because it would be neither super nor terrific or re- or re- remotely happy without her, is the effervescent Stephanie Pompey. Stephanie. Oh, how are you? I am I'm super terrific. What can I'm I tell you? I'm so glad to hear that. We have to be super terrific. We have a super terrific guest for our fifth we do. episode. Three in a row. Three in a row. Three We're, in a row. Now, before we, before we get to our guest, uh, what have you been up to? Because I know that you are no longer in the, the grimy, crimey streets of New York. You've made a break. Yes, I've escaped. I've gone to where I feel most at home. I'm in bear country out here in, <laughs> in the wilds of Colorado, you know, just hanging with my, my ursine cousins. Your grizzly friends. <laughs> well, Try, uh, trying not to be lunch. Yeah, well, this is wear a bell. That's the secret. I thought, wear a bell and carry a stick. It's a bit like investing these days. Wear a bell and carry a stick. It's just the best chance you got. Well, you, yeah. you did mention that we do have a guest, and we have a great guest, and he's a, he's a dear friend of both of ours, um, and neither of us has seen him for a couple of years now, but uh, he's very kindly agreed to talk to us on a holiday weekend, no less, um, and that is Dave Ivan of uh, Copenhagen Investors. Now, I, I first came across Dave when he was at Tradewinds out in Los Angeles, where he was for, for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I guess you would have been the same, Steph, I'm sure. Maybe, maybe even go further back than I do. I, actually, I remember him from being at Farmers Insurance oh, when I first okay. met him. So in 19, early 90s, that's how long? <laughs> it's yeah. a long time. It's a long time, but he, he now uh, has his own place, Copenhagen Investors, and uh, he is a throwback. He's a value investor who um, I, I've had the great good fortune to sit and talk to about value investing on many occasions. And, and it's, as you're about to hear, hearing Dave talk about this, it's, it's not what you think it is. And for, for those of you listening who, uh, who either look down the nose at value investing or are, are, are new enough to this game to figure that it's something that isn't worth bothering about, you're about to get a masterclass in, in, in yeah. what is, has become an art form over the last couple of years. And nobody does it better than I guess. So let's, uh, let's welcome Dave to the show. Well, Dave, welcome to the Super Terrific Happy Hour. Thanks for joining us on a, on a holiday of all things. <laughs> uh, my, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. It's, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, two of the people I respect most in the business, so uh, this will be great. Well, that's very, very kind of you. Thank you. Um, we, yeah. We've also been looking forward to this, Steph, haven't we? Yes. And the feeling is very much mutual, you know, in the however many years. I don't even want to count that we've known each other. I mean, <laughs> honestly, you are right up there as the brightest people I've ever had the pleasure to get to, to know. 
so it's wonderful to have you. Uh, well, thanks, and likewise. And it was great <laughs> listening to your uh, podcast with Bob Rodriguez. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, Brings back memories of those dinners we used to have out in LA and oh my gosh, growling around the table. Those were, you know, we've been through a bunch of these crazy cycles. So I'm looking forward as is Grant uh, to talking to you about, you know, how you, how you're navigating this current crazy environment. All right, sure. <laughs> in talking of cycles, um, if you can take us back to the first cycle of your career, because it was a while ago, um, and it'd be interesting to get some perspective. Because I'm always fascinated by the period people come into the industry, because I'm convinced that it really colours the way you view the world, the way you view risk, the way you view everything. So, if you can take us back and just give us a sense of where in the cycle you came in and, and what the kind of first turning point was that you lived and worked through. Certainly. Um, now, first of all, cycles are probably the most important thing. Uh, a lot of people seem to think they don't exist anymore. <laughs> if, if they're right, then I'm a dinosaur and I have no use talking to them anymore. But I, I, I believe that cycles are here to stay. Uh, and we are at an extreme, extreme point in the cycle. And to your question, I came in at the opposite extreme. You cannot believe how opposite it was back then. <laughs> That came in the early 80s when uh, bonds weren't yielding nothing. You know, long bonds were yielding. <laughs> Money market bonds, funds were yielding 22%. Uh, where people were rushing to buy that 15% long bond, now they were selling. They called them certificates of confiscation. At the yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to come in well towards the end of a 16-year bear market in equities too, and people wanted nothing to do with equities. And so I'd come in knowing nothing, I'd get excited, wow, great company, it's growing, it's 10 times earnings, and all the veterans would say, but you don't understand, it's gonna go from 10 times earnings to eight times, and then it'll go to six times, you're just gonna lose money. Well, yeah, fortunately, I didn't have 16 years of pain, so I was able <laughs> to invest, and so that was a, a great time, and I enjoyed it. But yeah, it was uh, different in a lot of ways. It was different, as I just mentioned, in the markets, but the environment couldn't have been more different, too. Uh, mm -hmm. People were in a mood of, big government is bad. You know, we want less regulation, and we don't want government interference, and they were starting to People were starting to re-embrace capitalism and, and laissez-faire uh, economics. Uh, the world was opening up. A lot of countries that hadn't allowed trade, you know, China and Russia, places like mm -hmm. that, were opening up uh, slowly back then, but a lot more 10 years later. And uh, you have massive trade. It's been a, a great 40 years. But uh, you're right, you get shaped, you know, shaped by that cycle. Yeah. And you, you watch things like, uh, you, know, you read about things like 1929 and you think, or 72, and think that, that could never happen again. And then you watch Japan, yeah. <laughs> just utter disbelief, and you think, well, that's Japan, it could never happen in the U.S. And then you watch 1999, <laughs> and you think, this is the height of idiocy, and yeah. <laughs> now it seems like just a, a, a little hors d'oeuvre compared to what we yeah. got. <laughs> so yeah, and 
most every way. Uh, I came into business at the other part of the cycle, which when uh, I'm a year and a half away from being into my my fifth decade, that's hard to believe. Wow! So, Dave, how, how did you how did you deal with the, having to kind of battle that mindset? Because when you're when you're young and green, you you kind of defer to everybody. It, it's really difficult to to stand up to entrenched wisdom in in a, in a market like that. No matter what. Your, your studies have taught you and, and what you think might be right. It's really difficult when, as you say, everyone around you is saying, look, young man, you just don't get it. How did you, how did you deal with that? Yeah. On a, on a tangent, which may or may not be interesting, uh, my philosophy has uh, stayed pretty much the same, but one place where I've changed in recent years, I used to think value could be taught. I used to think you take a very smart person and you explain the obvious to them, and of course they're going to embrace it. <laughs> yeah, you know, now uh, I think is is John Marie, who I also admire a lot. John Marie, have you heard? He uh, he says to me, "I think value is pain," <laughs> and yeah, I think he's right. I I think uh, you either have that gene that says. I am willing to do something that's short-term painful to make a lot of money for my clients. And, and not that many people have that. And back then, I was much shyer than I am now. And so I'd go in and I'd get beat up and I'd lick my wounds and go back to my office. And the next day, I'd go right back in for more wounds. It was just, I think, in my genes. I don't care if I get beat up because we got to get this thing into the portfolio. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's not a lot of true value people out there. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you guys know most of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because your start in the business is not only different, you know, it's really the polar opposite of where we are right now. It's like the perfect bookend to the era of globalization and, you know, uh, interest rate cycle, etc. But also... Um, you know, you really started even just a little bit before this whole era of um, aggressive, hyper-aggressive monetary policy started and we established the Fed put. And basically, you know, we're now battling that on steroids. So as much as value is pain, uh, that calculus must be even more true, you know, uh, right now with the Fed basically saying, Forget about the fundamentals. We're going to make sure they're irrelevant. I mean, how do you how do you stay sane and uh, focused with with the Fed basically doing everything they can to undermine your entire investment approach? <laughs> yep. Well, I mean, I, I on the quick thing, we'll come back to it. Undermining in the short run and the long run. Yeah. I think going to be a godsend for our approach, but not for the country, unfortunately. But uh, that's another thing that was exact opposite, as you point out. Uh, back then, people were so burned by inflation. People were so sick of the 1970s inflation that they were willing to accept uh, a recession to get rid of that inflation. Mm. You know, can you imagine if a Paul Volcker... Yeah ramp the rates and ramp the rates and ramp the rates. Yeah, unemployment's going up. The economy's in recession. The rates get up to 22% in, in money market funds. And 
you know, uh, as Jim Grant's written in the history, there's times where people have been shot for doing that, but yeah. <laughs> they were so sick of inflation that uh, they, they were willing to accept that. And uh, every Thursday, you know, we all had something that was called a Tellerate machine. And on Thursday, they come with the money supply. And if the Fed was looking for growth between, say, 4.2 and 4.5, and it would come out at 4.5, people would panic. Oh no, it's the high end of their range. <laughs> and after markets, they would kill the bond market and they would kill the stock market because 4.5 was just too much. You know, what would they have thought of, you know, three, $3 trillion in two months? Yeah. You know, it's, you know, people were so obsessed with money supply and then it went to where people don't care. And now, as you point out, people believe it's uh, a panacea for everything. That, mm -hmm. Somehow you can not just print money, you can print wealth out of thin air. And, but as uh, far as sanity, I mean, I, yeah, at the end of 99, early 2000, I actually did go to my biggest client and, and review and I said to them, you guys have a choice to make because one or two things is true. Yeah, the market's insane, or I'm insane. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's <laughs> nervous laughter. <clears throat> you know, uh, I think they were probably preparing to terminate me, but thank God the market turned, <laughs> and it turned hard. Well, here we are again. I, I think uh, that all of, all of us, the people we know, we're all kind of outliers, and we're insane, or the market's gone insane, and back to that cycle of you know cyclicality yeah. uh people do go insane and you mentioned money supply we've seen it over and over again you know as you read the lords of finance or other stuff about the 1920s they printed too much money they created a, a boom and people went nuts the stuff you read about in the 1929 and the blind pools and everything and and as Von Mises points out, uh, it's inevitably followed with a bust. And you know, I, I was still very young in the '60s and '70s, but the uh, old guns and butter policy—let's pay for everything—and mm -hmm. it led to a bull market in the '60s, uh, and then in the '70s, a bear in stocks and bonds, and the bull was in resources and emerging markets, gold. And then we saw in 19 in the 1990s. Uh, once again, they printed too much money. <laughs> money makes assets go up first. That brings in the uh, you know the novice investors, and you get things. Uh, everybody was a day trader in '99, mm -hmm. and you know, it was uh, a wonderful time to doing that until the inevitable bust. <laughs> and yeah, and now here we are again with money printing like it's not happened in our uh, country's history and it did what it always does. It went into assets. Why wouldn't it? You know, QE1, QE2, QE3, it was let's buy bonds. Uh, people say there's no inflation. No, the inflation's in the bond market. <laughs> you know, and so then as the Fed said, we're hoping the they didn't call it inflation, but we're hoping the inflation will spill into equities, and it did, and into real estate, into private equity. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's built into everything. Mm -hmm. And so here we are, and people are saying things that I agree with, and then a lot of things I disagree with. Like I 
you know, agree there's a lot of money out there and money makes things go up and maybe uh, these will be part of it. Uh, the cliche you hear a lot, we've crossed the Rubicon. Uh, yeah, it seems true. It seems like, uh, you know, once again, opposite of 1980, uh, everybody... Yeah, likes the idea of government involvement. Uh, you know, is it much, you know, uh, Caesar crosses the Rubicon, uh, who crossed it now? We have now an environment where big government is the answer. Yeah, the answer to the problems is let's, uh, let's print money, let's spend money. If somebody needs something, let's just spend it. Mm-hmm. Not if we have to borrow, because we can pay that up with printing money. And... So, uh, and of course, big business and big government seem to be working together. The big and powerful are getting bigger and more powerful. And so uh, really uh, on the surface, uh, value guys are doomed. Yeah, the big powerful guys are going to keep getting bigger and more powerful. And so, uh, you know, I agree with all of it, except for that we're doomed because yeah, if you go back to the other end of the cycle, uh, that is also true. A big might be good, but huge isn't good. There's this economies of scale. There, there's a reason the Soviet Union lost the Cold War. You know, if uh, having the government take care of everything was the answer, they would want. And so, why do we think that everything that happened 40 years ago led to a 40-year bull market and now doing just the opposite is mm-hmm. the next 40 years and then most importantly you know people are right uh, apple and google and these guys are great companies but yeah people weren't wrong in, in 1972 to think that coca-cola had a good future or johnson johnson american yeah. hospital uh, in the next 10 years digital equipment all those guys they did really really well uh the Stocks fell 75% in a couple of years. More than a decade to get even. Uh, 1999, people weren't wrong to to like Amazon and Cisco and Microsoft and Intel. It's just they lost 70 to 95% of their money in a couple of years. (laughs) Paid too much. I I don't view uh, 07 so much as the stock bubble as more a real estate thing, but even there, yeah, somebody sent a list the other day. It was all the big, good companies. They fell 70 to 80%. Mm-hmm. And so here we are again saying these are really good companies. They are, but I, one, another thing, when I came into the business, the entire U.S. stock market was $0.8 trillion. And huh. now we have these companies a trillion, a trillion and a half dollars. <laughs> yeah. You had better never have a bad day. And then uh, one more thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll slow down. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's- uh, the interesting thing about cycles is, and I don't know why decades matter. They probably shouldn't, but they seem to. So yeah. the, the big winners in the 60s were growth stocks. What was the last place you wanted to be in the 70s? It was growth stocks and, and 50-50 stocks. So the 70s, you wanted to be in gold, oil, and Schlumberger became the biggest market yep. in the world. So the gold emerging markets, agriculture, oil, all those things did really well. 
uh, where was the last place you wanted to be the, the next 10 years or even 20 years was in those things. Yeah. And then when those were falling, uh, then Japan was the place to be. Everybody had never liked Japan. Yeah, I liked reading about stuff that John Templeton was buying in the 70s. Yep. Why didn't everybody buy this? But then mm-hmm. everybody hated Japan back then. So then Japan becomes the place to be. All the U.S. companies are saying we have to do Kaizen manufacturing and, and dress our people up and do calisthenics before <laughs> the Japanese. Yeah. And so, of course, that's been pretty much the worst place to be ever since 1915. Mm-hmm. And then it was time to be back into U.S. growth stocks. They did great in the 90s. What was the last place to be the next 10 years? Yeah, and so the, the the odd decade, it was once again time to be back in gold and oil and emerging markets. And of course, they've been a disaster for most of the, the last decade and mm-hmm. maybe are starting to work again. But what's been the place to be, uh, the place to be the last 10 years has been the fangs and private equity and all these things. And so people think now's the right time to buy them. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, it's interesting though because you when you when you talk about that, you've just gone through a you know a forty fifty year period, and and as you pointed out, you've identified a cycle for each decade, and people seem to think that these cycles are much much longer than that. You know, a decade is really not that long a time when you're in, when you're trying to invest. Um, I mean, it is today because everyone's mindset is so short. But, but you know, we, we, we tend to think of these cycles as big kind of 30, 40 years. We think, talk about the credit cycle, which is, you know, probably a multi-decade cycle, which we're coming again to. It seems like there are multiple cycles kind of converging right now. But you said something at the beginning of that, that that stuck in my head. And that's when you talked about um, you're going to see your clients and you talked to uh, when we first started about how you take short-term pain to make a lot of money in the long term for your clients. And so talk a little bit about the relationship between a value investor and their clients, because it's, you either have to find the right clients and, and they're as difficult to find as value investors are these days, or you, or you have to somehow train them to understand what it means to be a value investor and take that short-term pain. How, how do you manage that relationship? Yeah. You know, as I said earlier, I used to think you could train people to be valued. Right. Uh, I'm no longer so confident on that. And so what we've said from the beginning is we've told our sales team and our clients, Cyrus teams, we don't want you to sell. You know, we're not against you making the sale, but we're, uh, we want you to inform. We want you to get out and meet lots of people and say, you know, here's who we are and what we do. But more importantly, here's how we do it and here's why we do it. And let's even over accentuate our, our eccentricities. Yeah. And, uh, and then 90% of the people will run for the exit and that's fine. And, uh, you know, three or 4%, they'll, they'll love it. And that's good. Yeah. And then you have some other people who say, all right, I don't know if I buy it, but, uh, yeah, it kind of makes sense. And, uh, you know, having 4% of our portfolio and something that will be working when everything else isn't working is worth the pain of it not working when everything else is. And yeah, like I say, we've been doing this a lot of years and we like everybody, we have good times and we have bad times, but uh, 
we uh, we made a lot of money when the market was crashing after uh, mm-hmm. 99, those two and a half years. We made a lot of money the first half of 2016 and that very short, uh, what looked like a trend right. that was not. And, uh, you know, we uh, off to a, a very nice start this year. And so there, you know, so there's people love what we do. And then there's the people that know they can count on us to uh, not have become a secretly become a closet indexer. Right. Yeah. And so that's been very helpful. And so we've informed and we have you know, really good clients. We're really blessed. You're really you know, pleased with the clients we have. Dave, what do you, you know, in this environment where you're, you've cultivated a client base that's sort of self-selecting that has patience and understands your process um, and you're all in the boat together kind of fighting this onslaught from the Fed, which is, actively working to sort of, you know, at least extend the time frame on when you actually, you know, reap the, the rewards. Um, I guess the question is, are, do you, are there things you're focused on day to day that you look for as a potential catalyst for when you're going to get, you know, finally the Fed is losing its ability to keep this entire, I'll call it a rig, uh, standing, you know, I, right now, each day they come in with a new announcement of some new program and what's to stop them from announcing, you know, on Monday morning that they're going to start buying S&P futures, you know, I mean, it, it appears that there's nothing that's off limit. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, you, you like, I um, feel this cycle isn't uh, going to be repealed, it'll just be delayed. But what gives you the the promise to cling to that view and, and uh, you know, what do you see out there that suggests the Fed is going to lose this battle ultimately? If I can put uh, those words in your mouth. <laughs> well, yeah, let's, well, let's go in three, three different ways. Starting, uh, like I said earlier, about if big government was the answer, then uh, you mm. know, why did the Soviet Union lose? But if uh, having your central government buy everything they can get their hands on is the answer, then we'd all be jumping into the Japanese market. Yeah. <laughs> and yet it's gone nowhere for, for three decades. <laughs> uh, why isn't it working there? And uh, Europe, Europe, uh, they've been you know more aggressive than us until recently and uh, hasn't done anything for their, uh, their markets or their economy. Even, uh, China, I don't think really anybody can keep up with China in terms of how much debt's been created and how much money's been print, printed in the last dozen years. It seems like their market's up huge. Go look, it's not. It's yeah. done nothing. Uh, and so, uh, you know, why is it going to work for us? It's, you know, I just think it's sort of like you know, Vietnam. We did, all right, the French lost the Vietnam War. We'll show them how it's done. <laughs> you know? And, yeah, I, and so that's one point. I I don't think that 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 can work. But then, you know, two more things. Uh, what what Grant mentioned earlier, the cycle. So yeah, you're both saying we can prolong the cycle. Obviously, we can. We've prolonged it longer than ever before. Yes. If that means it's dead, then it's dead. But if it's just prolonged, it's probably going to be uh, more prolonged the other way. And so, what is the cycle? If the cycle is financial assets versus real assets, 
it is as extended as it's ever been. I mean, you can go back 150 years. Real assets have never been this cheap versus financial assets. Uh, value versus growth. Uh, you know, value outperforms most decades to underperform this long and this steeply. It's never happened that I, I'm aware of. Uh, related cycle, passive versus uh, active. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people think passive's the winner. No, it's, it's also a cyclical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 90s, in a way, it wasn't as pronounced, but in the 90s, people hated tracking air more than they do now. You had to be an indexer, and if you weren't, you better closet index. Now, even though most people are indexing, they want their non-indexers to be way away from the index, so that's served as well. But that cycle, the amount of money that has left managers who do research and has gone into okay. managers who, by their own admission, don't do researches and, and our momentum strategies that buy more as it goes up, but uh, that's a really pronounced cycle. And then another cycle is U.S. outperforming versus the rest of the world yeah. outperforming. Yeah. And so that is about as extreme as I think it's ever been in history. So yeah. all these cycles, for what a lot of us value investors like, are as attractive <laughs> as they have ever been. And for people on the other side, uh, not that they're going to lose, but it's as, I'll say it's as dangerous as it's ever been. Yeah. So uh, I think the... Uh, Cycles are big, and then you know, I think the return on patience, if there is such a thing. Uh, yeah, when I came into the business, if you bought what people call dead money, all right, you buy a stock and it goes nowhere for you know two, three years, you were missing 22% a year in the money market. Uh-huh, right? That was <laughs> so now you got two things we're missing. Zero. Zero is the interest rate. We couldn't leave having our money in the bank or in treasuries. And in real terms, the uh, the central banks have promised us we're really going to lose a couple percent and maybe more. And so there is no opportunity. And then at the other end, the cycle, the payoff. And we can later, if we have time, get into what we like and why. But mm-hmm. uh, people will pay a fortune for what they think is a certain cash flow. So, you know, you say, here's a 10-year bond, you know, and you're going to get that money in nominal terms. And uh, people say, great, you know, 70 basis points is fine. And, uh, you know, if it's Germany, we'll take a guaranteed loss as long as it's certain. And and so that's kind of interesting. But if it's not cash flowing right now, People will sell you stuff at half price. Yeah, they'll sell you up at 75% off. And so we're telling people we're buying things that are going to double. And you know, to your question, they all say the same thing. What's the catalyst? And we say, well, the bad news is we don't have a catalyst, but right. the good news is it's going to double. And so <laughs> you can put your money in your 10-year bond and make 70 basis points. And if we double... This year, we're going to make a 100% return. And if it takes two years, we're making 41% a year. And and three years, is 26%. Seven years, we're making double-digit returns. If the unthinkable happens in this cycle that's already gone a dozen years goes 10 more years, we're making 
10% a year. Yeah. And people are like, uh, sounds good, but you know, let us know when you have the catalyst. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so yeah. we will let other people, you know, have their catalysts and have their uh, guaranteed payments. And we will buy things that probably are going to double, but oh. uh, not tomorrow. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we definitely want to come on to the things, the things that you like. Um, but, but just uh, one more question about this, if I can, and, and that's the, the the turning points because this, as we said, this cycle has been extended, <coughs> and there's been plenty of signs for me along the way in the last couple of years where you think, okay, I can see this is it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you go about first identifying those turns and then not getting kind of sucked in? to false ones and then managing them once, once you identify, okay, this is the turn. How do you then proceed from there? Yeah. As you suggest, uh, I think we've, you know, like Pavlov's dog or whatever, uh, uh, we're all reluctant to think this is the turn. And incidentally, it looks like it might be, but, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I, uh, you know, predicting the market in the short term is something I gave up long ago. And <laughs> turn, uh, if we were talking three or four years ago, I would have said, I can't imagine it going on another three or four years. Inconceivable. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm not saying I'm going to, that, that we have confidence on when, although it does feel pretty exciting, but let's look at one's choices. Yeah. I can buy a bond <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can buy a 30-year bond and I can, you know, make between 1% and 2% if everything goes well. Or if it doesn't, I get well, slaughtered. I mean, if rates go back to where they were when I came in the business, you're losing 90% of your money. Yeah. And so, yeah, to, to accept that kind of risk return, you got to be damn sure. <laughs> yeah. And I'm fairly sure of the opposite. So, uh, yeah, I'm not going to buy bonds. Uh, like I said earlier, they consider them certificates of confiscation back then. They're way worse now, way, way worse. I, yeah, I don't think bonds are investable anymore. <laughs> and uh, uh, then there's cash. So cash is safe if a guaranteed loss is a safe thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Central banks, uh, they, I think, you know, the only thing I've ever agreed with Ben Bernanke on ever is he says, what, we have a printing press. We can and we will create inflation. <laughs> I, I take them at their word. And so cash is, it's a nice place to store ammunition waiting for opportunities, but it's not something you want to hold on to for the long term. Mm-hmm. And then we can buy the indexes of stocks. And we can look at the PEs and price to book and price to sales and price to GDP and price to everything. And history and logic would suggest that the next 10 years, we're going to have very low returns if they're positive at all. Mm-hmm. And so there again, yeah, if the bulls are right, how much do they make from here? Yeah. You know, how much do you make from the NASDAQ being at all-time highs? You know, let's even forget earnings plunging and the economy I do in a different place. Uh, how much do you make versus how much do you lose if this is like, you know, 2007, 1999, 1972, 1929? Uh, uh, so the risk-reward is abysmal there. And then the sort of scenario I gave where we're going to double our money, but we don't know when, 
all of a sudden sounds like the only game in town. <laughs> and so, you know, people think it's maybe risky not knowing when it's going to come. It, it might be risky to my business. Somebody might fire me, but it's not going to be risky to my portfolio. Yeah. I'm probably going to make a lot of money. It's just a matter of how fast. And others are probably going to lose a lot of money, but I don't know. Well, as you said, Dave, you know, you're already making money in a lot of those uh, positions that you've put on uh, right now this year, despite everything that's going on. I mean, there've been a lot of sort of silent, uh, uh, what would you call it? Uh, explosions in different segments of the commodity space, for example. Um, you want to talk about some of those ideas and where you see the most opportunity? Sure. I mean, central, so I can throw out, I think our things are going to double. All right. Well, anybody can say that. Yeah. You guys know me a, a long time. I tend to not talk like that. But uh, yeah, we tend to be pretty conservative. But, you know, it's what people are paying for. I've done a series of presentations where I show, yeah, and the com the cash flow is the topic, but I'm using water and I have a little flowing stream and greenery and flowers and everything and water flowing through it. And then I've got a desert and in the background is a huge dam. <laughs> and I'm saying, yeah, which, uh, if you're looking for water, where do you want to look? <laughs> um, everybody's like, oh, the stream, you know? I'm like, well, yeah, it's ever, let's look behind the dam. It's huge. Yeah, so we have this thing, we're calling it latent cash flow or latent value. We all know that once somebody turns that spigot and some water starts to come out of that reservoir, that people will trip over themselves to uh, capitalize it at 2% or something. Yeah. Uh, but they won't pay anything before they can see it. <laughs> and so that's what we're, the other thing we're doing, we can get to it or not, is uh, emerging markets. But but a lot of our portfolio now is in this concept. We all, I think, in early economics, uh, we realize if you're making money at something, you produce more of it. And if you're making less, you produce less. And if you're losing money, you don't produce it. And, Stop, yeah. Uh, if the, if, you know, building buildings. If uh, you're going to build a brand new building and the market is half what it took you to build it, you stop building buildings. And eventually, like I say, there's no catalyst. It might take a number of years, but uh, the price of buildings is going to double uh, mm -hmm. so that people will be incentivized to build buildings. And if, uh, if corn is selling at too low a price to make money, you stop planting corn, you start planting wheat and so on and so forth. And so over the years, we've said, all right, well, when uh, the shipping business is going good, people will pay two or three times the value of those ships. And when those guys are having a bad turn and then they're bad, they lose money. <laughs> uh, you can buy these same ships for uh, you know 20 cents on the dollar, uh, sometimes sure. worse. And so we say, all right, we'll buy it and we'll lose money for a few years, but we're going to make five times our money, you know, and, you know, Full disclosure, we'll sell it before it's gone up the full five times where value guys bet at. Uh, <laughs> we'll still make two, three, four times our money. And uh, and so that that's what we've done with ships and with farmland and with other things. And then in particular, uh, you know, we don't pig on a price. We look for a range. And so we say, 
what would it take to make people mine copper as fast as they're depleting the existing mines? And we'll say 325, but we won't argue with 275 and we won't argue with you know, 375. And when the price is way above that, everybody's building mines and we don't own any copper companies. And when the okay. price is way lower than that, uh, yeah, then people stop mines. And so, and these are long cycles, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, two of our favorite areas right now, and we looked, you know, not so smart until the last year, uh, is uranium and gold. So uh, <clears throat> uranium is the perfect thing for how... Uh, I was going to ask you about uranium, yeah. I mean, I, we love the saying that the uh, solution to high prices is high prices, and mm -hmm. the low prices is low prices. So uh, what's happened? You had uranium go from the teens to $137 a pound. Uh, and, you know, that was the, the solution was the high prices. Okay. Kazakhstan alone, just Kazakhstan, increased their production tenfold. You know, Chemical brought on another big mine. Lots of in-situ mines were coming up left and right, and, uh, and it was too much. Uh, so they had a problem and the price fell from 137 down to uh, 60 or something. And then Fukushima happens. Mm -hmm. So now you got too much supply and way less demand and the price falls to 40 and 30 and 20, it fell to 18. Uh, and so uh, you know, we started buying in around 30 and wrote it down to 18. And for years we've been telling the people this is a great place to be. And uh, you know, talk about the cycle lasting longer than you think. Uh, it, it just went on and on and on. But you know, here's one of the few places where I guess there is a catalyst. The uh, you know, the uh, down cycle has been so long and so pronounced that over the last couple of years, Camago shut their biggest mine, maybe the best in the history of mankind. And then with the virus, they've shut their second biggest mine, Kazakhstan cut back production and then they cut it again. And the virus, they've cut it a lot more. You've had these unproductive mines in Africa that just kept going and you know, they have shut down. And, uh, and meanwhile, you've had people setting up funds just to buy uranium. And then you've had Japan bring on nine reactors and nobody's noticed that. And they'll hmm. bring on uh, another 10 to 20 of them. Uh, they won't bring back the whole 53, but uh, China, they put their stuff on hold for a while, but they've also built, I think, nine of them in the last couple of years, 30 more being built. Uh, well, that's new demand, but you don't even need new demand because, you know, inventories that had been so ridiculously high after Fukushima, they've been slowly dropping, 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 and nobody's cared, but uh, now... Uranium prices gone from from 18 into the 30s is bouncing around the, the mid 30s and and you know talking to people you can get prices all over but in order to incentivize people to build mines there's a few smaller ones or decent ones that can get built at lower prices but to bring on enough supply to make up for uh, the depletion of things like Cigar Lake that'll be gone in seven years. Uh, you, you need prices to double. 
Mm-hmm. You know, somewhere between sixty and ninety dollars, depending upon what demand is at the time, is what it takes. So we believe it's going to double. And if you own Cameco or Kazadam Prom, the two biggest, we own them both. Uh, they should more than double. If you own the guys like NextGen or Fission that don't even have mines, they just have a lot of uranium. Uh, there you get massive optionality. So uh, yeah. there. Huge, huge upside. Hmm. The gold companies, it's the same story. Yeah, although the first part of the story is the same. Just like with copper and oil and gas and all kinds of things that we kind of like here. Uh, we say you know, gold is a commodity and for years it's been used for jewelry and electronics and other things. Uh, as a commodity, it should get to its incentive price. Uh, you have small mines being built, uh, uh, no big mines. In order to bring uh, bring gold on as fast as it's being depleted, you need a price of call it two thousand. Now, when the price was a thousand and fifty, it maybe sounds shocking when we're telling people that. Yeah. Now we're not too far away anymore, so mm-hmm. people are less willing to argue with that. Uh, so. There's upside. It can go up a hundred, two hundred, three hundred plus or minus. Uh, but then people tell us, "All right, well, we get it. Uh, you know, commodities. You know, if the price of corn goes too low, we're all eating corn and it gets consumed, and we all put gasoline in our gas tank, and you know, we put copper in the industrial process. But you know, we don't do that with gold. We don't eat gold. We don't put it in the gas tank." Uh, yeah, we don't, you know, sure there's some jewelry, but for the most part, there's no real demand for, for gold. It's just a worthless barbellic, you know. <laughs> and, and we say, exactly, we agree. Gold does not sound like a commodity. Gold sounds like money. Yeah, we don't eat dollar bills and we don't throw a pound sterling in the gas tank. And, you know, it, it's, and we're not tossing a bunch of yen into an industrial process, and all of those yield nothing. You can loan them for yield. Gold yields nothing. You can loan it for yield. And so uh, maybe we should compare gold to dollar bills and other fiat currencies, and then it's a supply-demand issue. Yeah. Uh, talk yeah. about talk about another thing that was different in 1980. Yeah. In uh, 1980, the in- Entire money supply divided by the gold that the uh, the government has uh, was around four hundred dollars an ounce. Uh, yeah, back in February, I think that had already gone up to thirteen thousand an ounce, yep. and now doubled that or whatever. Oh, it's wow. hard to keep up from day to day, but uh, right, <laughs> up, up twenty thirty thousand. And so uh, now we're not saying it's going to go there. And, and matter of fact, uh, you know, Bretton Woods is probably average 25% coverage, not 100%. And I think over hundreds of years, the British kept it or 33. But let's just say as a commodity, gold is worth a couple thousand and as money, it's worth multiples of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether it's three, four, five, six, ten. Yeah, it's not even be, not even really the point because the last point is that gold is trading at seventeen hundred above the ground, 
And below the ground, it's trading for a couple hundred bucks. And uh, mm -hmm. sure, it's going to cost you a thousand bucks to bring it up and pay taxes and royalties and whatever. But uh, most of these gold companies, under the scenario that we're wrong and gold stays where it is, uh, most of these companies could liquidate. And we'd end up with more money than it takes to to pull it out of the ground and process it and sell it. Uh, and, Exceeds the market cap, so we could liquidate at a profit. If it goes to 2,000, which isn't that far away, uh, many of the stocks should double from here. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of optionality. And then if gold is money, we're talking massive, massive upside. So, you know, the risk reward on that kind of feels like the opposite of the risk reward on a long bond. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. Do you think, you know, I get this question a lot, Dave, and that is uh, for people. Uh, like the three of us in this conversation, um, I would maybe putting words in your mouth again, but I would assume that you're a little surprised that gold isn't even higher than it is right now, given the amount of uh, monetary uh, expansive policy we've seen, not just here, but around the globe. I mean, what do you think? I get this question all the time. Why do you think gold isn't already at 2,000, 3,000, 4,000? Uh, you know, you guys probably know better than me, but it's harder really to answer that. I, you know, when gold was pegged you know, 35 bucks or whatever for uh, all those years, uh, you know, then it shoots up to uh, 200 something and then it went sideways for a while and then everybody loved it when it hit 800, but, uh, you know, they couldn't buy it fast enough. Uh, then it goes down, 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 down. And, uh, yeah, you guys know how uh, really unpopular it was to own gold in 2000. I mean, really unpopular. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like more unpopular than walking down the street without a mask now, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and it took, a, you had that sort of bottom in the late 90s and again in 2002, people didn't want to own it. Yeah, even though the you know all that money printed had gone into the Nasdaq, it didn't go into gold. But eventually, it rolled. It takes its time. Um, so now you've had, you know, since what 2011, every dollar printed seemed to have gone into the Nasdaq and not into gold until recently. Yeah, psychology, people, they look in the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. and so we've all learned. Yeah, once again, Pavlov's dog, all right? They're pretty money by the NASDAQ. It's all, you know, and you know, I'm kind of doing an exhibit with like an inflatable mattress. You pump it up and, uh, you know, all the air goes into that first section until it's really pumped up and eventually it flips and the air goes into the next section. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so everybody thinks that the section that just got pumped up the last 10 years is obviously the section that's going to get pumped up again but i think you know we're talking about can we predict the turn no we can't but the mattress seems to be flipping yeah the, the nasdaq is still going up but gold's going up gold stocks are going up um you know uranium's going up uh yeah people are, are slow uh, yeah eventually yeah i believe they'll you know, now they're losing money on a lot of stocks, but not on their favorites. Uh, right. Those will come down. And as those slowly start to come down, 
and gold keeps going up. And then just as bonds migrated into NASDAQ, which migrated into private equity, I think you'll see the run in gold, one, continue, two, migrate into copper and nickel, mm -hmm. and, you know, oil and gas. That's my opinion. And people won't believe it for the first two or three years. And well, I mean, gold's been going up since January 2016, and mm -hmm. people are just starting to believe. And uh, and then, you know, gold is so cheap compared to dollars, and at the same time, it's it's as expensive as it's ever been, probably against, you know, gas and oil and copper and yeah. other things. And so it will start to migrate there, too, I believe. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the turns in the process of happening and you know we already discussed we we keep getting burned thinking that but, yeah. <laughs> but uh this is massive money they're burning massive and so is it really gonna you know, take apple from one and a half trillion to three trillion or is it likely to migrate into things yeah. that are too cheap Dave, do, do you when, when you when you see these things like the uranium play or the gold play do you do you go into the commodity first uh and then kind of look for stocks or do you prefer to play it through stocks and if so do you stick to the the chemicals of the uranium world and the you know the new monster the big the big guns or do you or do you spend time looking around for the value that's in the smaller companies that people just tend not to trust when these things happen yeah now there's all kinds of places we can go there too but we're 100 percent bottom up now what bottom up means is is where the discussion so we start from the company level but we're also having to look at the commodity yeah it's very important to us this incentive price i talked about if uh if a company is selling at a i mean if a commodity is selling at a level that is making people a lot of money you're probably seeing a lot of supply and the process is coming yeah. on and you know people are probably even borrowing to bring that supply on sowing the seeds for the next downturn and you know once things are too low and people are paying down their debt and selling off things at the bottom uh, you know, it's like the gold companies were doing three or four years ago selling everything at the bottom you know. <laughs> but uh, uh yeah that's when the cycle is washed out and so we uh we only will buy the companies whose commodities are undervalued or, or maybe fairly valued, but then way undervalued in the ground. So uh, the two go hand in hand, but we never say, ooh, we think the economy is going to pick up you know, from 3% to 5%, and that's going to create demand for copper, so let's right. go buy a copper company. That, that's <laughs> not what we do. We say... Yeah, what's uh, what's the imprint price on so copper? When are we going to buy that? We're going to buy it when it's selling way below that. When's that going to be? That's going to be when nobody can imagine the economy picking up. Uh, and so we're purely uh, bottom up uh, on that part. And what was there? Something else? But go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I just say when you when you when you come into these things and you you're, you're looking at the the commodity, how do you then go from there into the the companies? What 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 do you look for? Uh, it's interesting you know, to go off on a, a tangent that hopefully helps. If we're talking about stocks, you know, people over the years, especially value guys, are saying we have cash. So we're going to sit on our cash and we're not going to buy a stock unless it's compelling. And so I will buy a stock because if I think I put 100 bucks into the stock now, I'm going to get back 400 bucks. <laughs> and uh, 
Yeah, and, and I think that's the way people ought to do it. Uh, but when it comes to gold, I think right now we're also in the process of realizing once again that gold is money and the dollar is an imposter. And so it, it's a couple of things. It's so frustrating. And of course, the gold companies are as frustrated with me as I am with them. <laughs> I keep telling them, you know, here's the deal. Yeah. You know, I'm giving you dollars because I want to turn my dollars into gold. <laughs> yeah, it, it's sort of like alchemy. I'm yeah, and I'm turning it into gold. And then you're telling me your plan is to turn that gold back into dollars as fast as you can. <laughs> and I'm like, no, don't do that. Yeah, and we have, we have these conversations. I'm saying I've had these same conversations. With you. <laughs> I say, here's the problem. You guys think you're miners, and I think you guys are lucky enough to be sitting on a valuable option. <laughs> and options are worth more the longer duration they are. And so, yeah, if I have an option to buy gold at 2000 and I got 10 years on that option, I'm probably going to make a lot of money unless you sell the gold now at 1700 <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Why would you do this? And, and, <laughs> Please don't do that. And you know, you get these companies to promise they're not going, and then they do it. You know, we had one company we own a lot of that sold one of their best properties for nothing a few weeks ago. It's frustrating. Yeah, uh, but that's one point. Is you know, it's commodities we want to own. It's the dollars we want to get rid of because sometime yeah. in the next few years. As you know, you guys are students of history. Everybody's going to want to get rid of their dollars pretty soon. And, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, we want to beat them to that and turn yeah. our dollars into something real. But then it's also that same concept. I know so many people who love gold who say we hate miners. Yeah. yeah. And it could go for other commodities too. And I say, yeah, that, that's sort of music to my ears if even the van <laughs> buy the van, the miners. And so, you know, nobody's buying the miners except for, you know, a few gold bucks or whatever. And so this is perfect. Yeah, if the people that hate gold hate gold miners, and the people that love gold hate gold miners. Yeah, yeah. And our view, just like I've said with the commodities, it's not good or bad. It's what's it worth? Yeah. yeah. Question: What's it worth? And so, yeah. So then, if I can own gold versus a miner, all other things equal, I'd much rather hold gold. Why do I want? to take a chance of a government taking the mine or increasing mm -hmm. the tax or management doing something stupid or the chemistry is different than we thought or the geology is different than we thought. Who needs that? So I want to own gold above the ground. But then someone comes along and says, here, I'll give it to you at this price. And then I'm saying, hmm, well, now I can pay for all that money, I can pay the royalties, I can pay, I can pay for massive cost overruns. Yeah. And I'm still getting gold for way cheaper than $1,700. I got massive upside, massive optionality to boot. Mm -hmm. uh, so I will do that. And then to the second part of your question, they'll tell me, and if it's a mine that's not even operating right now, <laughs> Yeah, we'll almost pay you to take it from us. <laughs> and so we're there. Yeah, so yes, we own, you know, Newcrest Gold and Cameco and Kaz Adam Prom and these, you know, good companies that are reasonably well run to have cash flow. But 
a meaningful part of our portfolio is people that own a lot of uranium and gold and they can't take it out of the ground for the next five years mm-hmm. <laughs> because they don't have a mine. And Wall Street hates that. Yep. Yeah. Street, they hate that. It's like time value of money. Though I say like you guys have it backwards because gold is the money. And I do agree with the concept of there's risk to owning the businesses, but to me, there's no risk owning gold. So the discount rate for gold should be nothing. Right. The mm-hmm. discount rate on a gold miner should be something, except for, you know, the time value of money, as you guys have all talked about, the central banks have taken that away from us. We don't even know what it is. There is no measuring stick. So we got that problem. And then we got the problem of how do I value gold next year versus Five years from now, if I'm pretty sure the price of gold is going to be way higher five years from mm-hmm. now, one year, do I want it earlier? Don't I want it earlier? So putting a discount rate, assuming I even know when the, assuming I know what the discount rate is and assuming that I know which year the gold's going to come out of the ground. So what we do is we just say, instead of putting a discount rate on it, we put a discount on the whole stock. Right. Yeah, we think the stock's worth 50, but we're going to hit it 40, 50, 60, sometimes 90% for all those risks. Uh, you know, uh, if it's a poorly run company in emerging market, we have demanded 90% discounts on some, and yeah. still made a lot of money because yeah. we were actually buying them 98% off. And so, uh, you know, there is no right way to do it, but we've tried to eliminate the clearly wrong ways to do it. And I think, in our opinion, so many people out there are doing it the wrong way by putting precision on an imprecise thing. Yeah. And because it's imprecise, people should only do it when there's massive upside. And there are massive upside on miners, massive, especially the small ones. Small ones, not the explorers, the ones that have already found the yep. resource. Yeah, yeah. This isn't part of your calculus, obviously, but large institutional managers who I talk to who are interested in gold can't position that view because the space is just so small right now. You know, uh, they would have to buy the entire, you know, XAU basically to have any meaningful impact on their performance. So it's one of those things where if you get to the point where the miners really start to pick up, then it becomes a self-fulfilling you know, a positive feedback loop because more people have an opportunity to actually put money to work there. Um, again, not part of your calculus, but could could really increase the upside potential on that substantially, I would think. Yeah. I mean, it's, you, know, you guys have written about it, and it is interesting. Uh, when big money decides to like gold, they'll, they will buy Barry. They mm. will buy yeah. these smaller ones. Right. That might go first. Um, you know, we've got no problem with Barrick. It's just we find a lot of them to be better values. And so we could own all the big ones and figure that the money will go there first and then trickle down. But yeah, you know, once again, the whole idea, we don't have the callus and we don't know the future and we don't know how it's going to play out. And mm-hmm. so if, uh, if, Barrick's likely to go up 70% and we have a company that's going to go up 500%. We're just going to buy the one that's going up 500% and we're going to actually own a dozen of them that we think have that yeah. kind of upside. And 
maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised and the money will start to go in and, 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 you know, 2016. And again, this year, it actually is playing out that way. Some mm-hmm. of the small guys are really starting to move. And so, you know, I, as you know, back to this catalyst thing too, I, I, uh, whether it's gold or copper or not even resource names, uh, yeah, if, if in this zero interest rate environment, I think I'm going to make a hundred percent. I would rather get in and lose 30% of my money before it triples and gets me to hundred percent. You know, I can forgive myself for that. Hopefully the clients can too. You know? <laughs> it's not fun being down 30, but that's the price that has to be paid sometimes. It, yeah. if, if a company is trading at, 20% of what it's worth, uh, then why not go to 15% of what it's worth? Yeah. That, those mm-hmm. things happen. But I cannot forgive myself if the stock I think is going to go up five times, went up five times and I didn't own it because I thought it was going to drop 30% first. Right. And so that's just our mindset. And yeah, although it's off onto a, another tangent is volatility. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of, of, you know, the people you know would be in our camp, but most people aren't. Uh, I mean, value guys tend to, to think that risk is all about permanent loss of capital. Uh, but the industry seems to think volatility is risk. And that is just such a bizarre thing. Um, uh, if you're heavily margined, yeah, it's risk. Yep. Yeah, if you have three months to be right, it's risk. If you're a long-term investor, Volatility is opportunity. <laughs> it's an opportunity to buy low and sell high. And so uh, the market's got it wrong, but I think it has it so wrong that, you know, as Howard Marks talks about, you know, if you have a portfolio of bonds that are already in default and you buy them cheap enough, you, know, you buy them 10 cents on the dollar, it's not risky. It's almost a guaranteed triple because you're going to get money on the workouts. Well, yeah. because money's pouring into low vol. What a reason to invest in something. It's not the right. <laughs> product you make or what's your service or, you know, does it provide something mankind? It's, oh, your stock's been volatile the last 10 years. I'll buy. I don't even want to ask you the price. I will buy as long as the last 10 years have been good. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, so that's asinine. But the other side of the, the spectrum is it's volatile. So I'm going to sell it. You know, at what price are you going to sell it? Price? No, sell. <laughs> and so that means that uh, the most volatile stocks are the cheapest stocks, which means the most volatile stocks have become the lowest risk. So you have the most <laughs> upside potential with right. the lowest risk. Right, right. <laughs> and there again, it takes me to commodities and emerging markets. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, you, you, you've talked weekend. about emerging markets a couple of times now, so let, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Where, where do you see the opportunity uh, in that part of the world? Yeah, and you talk about cycles. Yeah, a dozen years ago, many of my clients were calling me up saying, "Get me out of the U.S. <laughs> yeah, just get me out. Yeah, this QE stuff is nuts. And how long is it till before we have currency controls and the dollar goes to hell? Get me out." And and not even just stocks. I want my custodian to be offshore. The U.S. is doomed. You know, what do you want to own? Oh, I want to own agriculture, and I want to own gold, and I want to own emerging markets and infrastructure. And so here we are 12 years later, and people say, 
get me into the U.S. dollar at any price. Right. It's, it's yeah. the cleanest, dirty shirt. And so uh, I don't care the price. I want to own the dollar and I want to own, you know, U.S. bonds and U.S. stocks and everything else. And what do they hate? They hate well, no longer gold. I can't say that anymore. They hate most other commodities. They hate emerging markets. They hate infrastructure, telecom, transportation, these sort of things. And if you can buy, you know, in emerging markets, actually, uh, you know, well, we've always said growth and value, they're not philosophies at all. Yeah. Value is a prerequisite. That's to me, investing, buying stuff for mm-hmm. worth. And growth is a wonderful attribute. Uh, <laughs> 2009, we were being accused of having become a growth manager and we're saying, well, yeah, we own eBay and Microsoft and Whole Foods and all that because they dropped 80%. You know, and mm-hmm. so, uh, but now you can buy uh, Verizon in the US. Uh, fine, you get a company that's a triopoly and good technology and pretty dominant and it's in a field where, uh, where uh, it's the last thing people are going to cancel. And, you know, who's going to give up their cell phone service? And right. so, why not? So we got no problem with Verizon. We don't own it. But uh, if you're willing to go to Korea or China, Korea Telecom, KT Corp, or China Telecom, kind of the same thing. Uh, they're triopolis. They have some of the best technology in the entire world. Yeah, they, uh, <coughs> you know, they're actually in growing countries, although not so much Korea. Uh, uh, so the same thing. And so uh, where you have to pay a PE in the teens for Verizon, you get single-digit PE for these other two. Uh, price to tangible book on Verizon's infinity. They don't have any. Uh, price to tangible book on these other two are around half, half a tangible book. Yeah. And I know book value is quaint now, but we still <laughs> Some, some safety to be able to buy things at half of what it took to build it and, and have a, an oligopoly. On a price per customer, yeah, obviously you have to make X amount per customer yeah, to, to make your earnings. Uh, price per customer of Verizon is uh, 10 times more expensive than, than these other two. And, and so we're thinking, yeah, we're uh, half a book and single digit PEs and, and yields of around 5%. We're gonna do well if we're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we're right. If these companies are pretty good companies and their margins can go up to an average margin and their PE goes up to an average margin, you know, double the earnings and double the multiple on top of that, you got a four bagger. And so you don't have to choose, do I want growth or quality or value? You get all three of them. Um, same thing with railroads and you know, it's, it's, really nice where you can get uh, in emerging markets and, and some Japanese, which is not emerging market, the same thing there. We can buy trading companies, at, you know, fractions of book, even though they've made money every year but one since World War II. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing, though, that the emerging markets are still, you know, they're still lumped in as high risk, high volatility, and those are anathema. So, Regardless yeah. of when you go through and you you know look at price to book and all the fundamental analysis that you're doing, it's just for most people they have that Pavlovian oh no you know if we're going to have some kind of global downturn or any kind of 
hump in the road economically, the first thing you do is sell emerging markets and ask questions later. I mean, Mm -hmm. but it's amazing. That's, it's just another example of your uh, volatility risk uh, misnomer, I guess, that we're, we're seeing out there. I mean, you know, as we all know, there, you know, career risk is a big factor in our business. (laughs) That's Korea, not Korea. Right. Yeah. With a C. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But I mean, so yeah, if people are saying, "All right, do I want to talk to my client about this volatile stock that just fell down?" No. Do I want to talk to them about headline risk? You know, do I want to talk about how North Korea just provoked South Korea again? No. Yeah. Do I want to talk to them about this battle between the U.S. and China? No. Do I want to talk to them about the latest thing Putin did? No. For every reason, I'm not going to own these things. And so, uh, you know, we think they've taken legitimate concerns and turned them into huge, huge, huge concerns. They've way, way overdone it. And, you know, in our career, we've, you know, found that you know, people will say, you know, how do you compete with people that are on the ground in all these other countries? And we say, well, they have a competitive advantage in, in certain ways. They have a disadvantage on size, though. You got to be small to take advantage of yep. small miners and small uh, companies mm-hmm. in Korea or something like that. But also feet on the ground it gets you more information but it gets you more caught up in the emotions i think yeah so true and so like brazil i mean everybody loved it in the 60s and everybody hated it for the next 20 years and they said it's the you know the country of the future and always will be and you know people hated lula when he became president and so we said well what do we know about lula we just know we're buying some of the best companies in the world at at 80 percent off sale and it worked very well for us. And then he goes and, you know, people didn't worry about risk anymore, but they uh, should have. Uh, <laughs> you know, when, uh, you know, when she came in, uh, Dilma uh, and uh, lowered a co- company we owned, uh, Electrobras, she cut the rates by a third. Uh, that meant going from massive profit to massive losses. Yeah, nothing like a heavily indebted company with a cafe. <laughs> massive losses, and you know, the stock dropped 90%, and uh, we turned it in one of our biggest positions, and uh, you know, they impeached her, and it went up seven times in a couple of months. That was the, <laughs> but uh, yeah, in the uh, US, uh, when Obama became president, we went from owning no drug companies to uh, some of our biggest positions were Pfizer, Amgen, uh, Lilly, Aetna, things like that, because people were just so sure it was the end of of healthcare. And turns out, not at all. Uh, We had, uh, five years ago, at the height of the, of the Russian hatred. I don't think I've ever seen anything hated as much as Russia was. Yeah. So most people I think were like 56% US and and 0% Russia. We were 19% Russia and about 3% (laughs) US. You you can imagine we took a lot of slack, but I think Russia's probably been the best single performing market. It's left the NASDAQ in the dust uh, from the 2016 bottom, but yeah, it's people were saying we hate Russia. Well, we said 
we have a lot of fears. We want half off. We're not even going to touch it unless we get half off. Uh, but uh, one, yeah, we worry about corruption and we worry about political skirmishes and we worry about rule of law and all these things. But we also like the fact that they have very little debt, way less than most any other country. They have massive resources. They mm -hmm. have companies. They have stability for good or bad. And so we want half off for Gazprom. Margaret said, half off, how about 95% off? Yeah, <laughs> sell this to you for less than a dollar a barrel, barrel, of, you know, barrel of oil equivalent. Yeah. You know, 120th of what most of the majors were going for at the time. Uh, you know, we'll sell you a spare bank with their 22% uh, return on equities and massive dominant position for a big discount to book value. And of course, that worked well. Utilities at two times earnings we were buying. and. Yeah, now uh, yeah, we've harvested a lot of that, although we still have a lot of things there. But now, uh, well, up until a few months ago, the for some reason, Korea, why do they hate Korea? But, uh, <laughs> you know, all of, we were able to buy conglomerates, you know, 40% of book value. And, and so, and I already mentioned their phone company, things like that. So uh, we find that we want to be aware of the politics and the mood, what people are feeling, but yeah, we want to make sure we adjust the discount. We want bigger discounts, yeah. but, but when the crowd is all hating something, that's almost always the time with you know, the Rothschilds that buy when there's blood in the streets. And uh, right. John Templeton, who was always one of my favorites, says, everybody asks, where do things look good? You know, wrong question. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. I was just going to say, you know, we uh, demand some uh, uh, measure of compensation for taking political risk everywhere around the globe, but not here at home. What do you uh, what do you make of the current situation? I mean, how does that? It, it would seem to me that uh, no country is possibly more fraught with political risk than we are right now in terms of the potential for a, a major change in the direction of the the American economy. But do you do you have any thought? And again, that's not what you do, but yeah. I'm sure you have a view. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a value investor, I'm used to the wind being in my face. Uh, but how nice it is now that the emerging markets and the gold and the uranium and natural gas, I think the wind's at our back and we got valuations. And then the US to your question, yeah, it's at all time highs on almost any valuation you can think of. So I don't even need to know anything else. I, I, I don't want to own very many. We, you know, outside of some gas companies or whatever, we, we don't want to pay these prices. If, if things look perfect, like some people thought they looked in February, um, yeah. don't. it's not, it's not in my DNA to pay those kind of prices when things look perfect. But, uh, to your point, my God, they're far from perfect. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you just told people at the beginning of the year, right, the you know, market's at all-time highs, here's what's going to happen. I mean, you're going to have the worst recession since the 1930s, and earnings are going to plunge, and the government's going to come in and 
act like it's the Soviet Union. They're going to handpick the winners and say, you, you go bankrupt, you shut down, you stay open, you get unlimited access to free money. And so we're like this totalitarian state and who knows who gets what and when. And, uh, and you know, guess where the stock market's going to be. <laughs> I mean, you could have probably talk to a thousand people and not got anybody to guess where the NASDAQ was going to be now. Yeah. I think. And so I, uh, you know, we're bottom up. So we do have a few gas companies and we got a little bit of GE or things like that. But uh, for the most part, the U.S. is priced for perfection and the newspapers are showing the furthest away from perfection, mm -hmm. the 1930s. And something has to give, you know, and I would suggest it's two things. I would suggest the price of the assets will go down even as eventually the fundamentals that support them, you know, rents and wages and costs of oil and uh, costs of copper and food, they keep going up. I, mm -hmm. I think, you know, the, the decade of the money going into the assets will transition to the decade of assets dropping and, and real things going up. And, mm -hmm. I guess I'll have to go and recreate the CPI once again. <laughs> uh, excluding the volatile food, energy, healthcare, tuition, yes. anything that you require in your life, please. Uh. I've just I've just looked at the time. I just realised how we've 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 kept you for way longer than we planned it. But it's such a fascinating conversation. I you know I've been fortunate over the years to sit and have dinner with you on a few occasions, and we talk about the stuff. And I, you know, every time. I talk to you about this stuff. It, you always make it sound so sensible and so yes. <laughs> and so easy to understand. And, and I, you know, I, I I do spend a lot of time thinking about this afterwards. And you realize that the the missing ingredient that most people seem to suffer from is just patience in, in this mm. day and age. It just seems to be people have this extraordinarily short time horizon and and are so impatient. You know, and to talk, sit and hear you talking about how you understand it's perfectly normal for these things to go down 30% before they go up 500%. It, most people just can't tolerate that. Yeah. They, just, they, just, they just can't get their heads around this longer term view, understanding the, the true value of, of what you have and understanding that sometimes it just takes time for that value to be recognized by people outside, guys like you. And it's just, that's just the way it is, unfortunately. I mean, what's the saying? I think it's true that it is very simple, but not at all easy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so true. So true. That, that's, that, that is literally the perfect soundbite to wrap this up with. Yeah. It's, it's, been, but, it's been a fabulous story. Steph, go ahead. I was going to say, you make it look easy, though, Dave. You really do. So congratulations on your, is it five decades now that you've been at this? That's, that's impossible. In another year and a half, I'll be in the fifth decade. So it's been wow. 30, 38 and a half years. I, I don't know how. I, I think I'm still 20. <laughs> but well, when, when, when we get to that fifth decade, Steph and I are going to come buy you dinner. <laughs> that's like the least Done. We do. Done. Dave, listen, thank you. Thank you so much for taking this time on a holiday weekend. Uh, we can see that you're in the office there, which is just, just testament, testament, I guess, to, to everything we've talked about today. But again, look, thank you for taking the time. And, and I, I think I can speak on behalf of Seth and say we hope we both get to see you in person again sometime soon. I hope so. And great Definitely. talking with you as, uh, as always. So hope to right. see you both soon. Take care. Dave. Great. Thanks, a lot. Thanks Dave. Thank you.
All right. Well, Steph, we promised people a masterclass and we got one. You know, when I listen to Dave, I feel like I'm reading Ayn Rand in terms of not, not necessarily the content, although to some degree, but more when you read it, at least for me, it's impossible not to be nodding your head in, yep. you know, uh, real rigorous agreement and to say, how could anyone possibly disagree with this? It's all so simple. It's so logical. It's so um, clearly laid out. I don't know how anyone could debate having well, that approach. I, yeah, I agree. And as I said at the end there with Dave, I, it, over the years, it's, he's been such a great kind of grounding post for me. Um, because whenever I've had these conversations with him, as you just said there, you walk away going, well, yeah, right. Well, it duh. Just, it just, duh. Yeah, it just, that's how you're <laughs> supposed to invest. But, and, and, you know, I touched on it there, that, that, that lack of patience that people have. And, and, and it, it really is this, this shift from, uh, investing used to be that. And now investing is basically benchmarking. It's not investing. You're just, right. you're going to take the stock market returns, and you just want to pay low fees for it. That's it. Right? That's basically what it's become. Yeah. And it's either that or trading. People don't invest anywhere. They either trade and they're trying to whip things around and they're looking for price targets. And they're... But, but how few people do you get to sit and talk to that think like Dave does? So, yeah, I, I see the value here. And if I lose 30%, that's okay. I, I can tolerate that because I, the, the upside is, is 500% and I'm willing to take that risk. It's, it's, it is a skill. Uh, it's a... It is a skill now, especially, and almost feels anachronistic in a world where we have become an instant gratification society and, and it's mirrored in the, you know, investment universe where everyone, you know, they're basically at the end of the day, they look at where they closed relative to the market and, you know, it's um, just a minute by minute assessment of how much money did you make for me today versus, you know, Dave's approach. And it's so logical when he lays it out and says, what's the opportunity cost of patience right now? Yeah. It's zero in nominal terms. What's it in real <laughs> yes, terms, right. you know? Right. Right. <laughs> so, no, it's so, getting it's paid so to be patient. Yeah, it's so, it's so true. And, and he's, he's stuck to that for, as he said, almost four decades now. Yeah, um, amazing. And he's done extraordinarily well with it. And you, you, as I say, you, you, you think about, I, I think it was you that had the chart in one of your things just just a chart of um the s&p in gold ounces and you look at that and, and we're back to where we were in the mid 90s you know you could have you could have just kept your money in gold this whole time missed out yeah. on all the stress all yes you'd have missed all the, the drama right but who gets the top nobody gets the top you know one guy yeah. makes the print at the top um and you could buy the s&p today exactly the same amount of the s&p you could buy today without any of that stress and 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 you know that's what dave does he sits there patiently yeah. identifies things that are actually worth more than they're trading for. And he mm -hmm. waits until people will come and pay him more than they're worth. And he gives them to them. It's, it's it, mind blowing, right? right? <laughs> it might catch on. What do you think? Well, why didn't I think of this? Yeah, right. Oh boy. Well, oh, listen, man. we've, um, we come to the end of another super terrific, happy hour and a half here, which is, uh, yeah. which is great. We managed to, we managed to extend it. We've given people 50% more super terrificness and happiness. Absolutely. Well, the time flew by for me, so hopefully yeah. it will for, for all our listeners as well. I'm pretty sure it will. It really does. All, all we can do is, uh, all that's left to do rather, is to thank Dave for joining us. Um, for me to thank you, Steph, for, for making this super terrific always and let people know where they can follow us. You can follow us on Twitter uh, at STH Hour. 
But uh, if you want more regular postings, then you should follow <laughs> us individually. Me at TTMYGH. I don't know how regularly I post, but it's S at S Tomboy. You're, so. getting, you're getting better at it. You're getting better. You're posting more regularly. Let's put it that way. Right. <laughs> now you're in Colorado. Maybe you'll post less because you've joined the nice weather. Sure. Let's hope. <laughs> Steph, thank you so much. Let's do this again. Ta-ta. Ta-ta. <laughs> Nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.